From the Southern Oral History Program at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, this is Press Record, the podcast about the joys and challenges of learning history by talking to those who lived it. I'm Carol Prince. Environmental racism is complicated. So, what is the so I'm, I'm asking, I'm talking to people and doing interviews to collect their stories so I can put all the stories together and try to understand what happened here. We know all the waste is going in that water and we just, yeah, you're going to get sick. You know, one person said, you know, we can't remain silent anymore. We have to tell our stories. And then all these stories started coming out. People really tire of talking about what's wrong with their communities. They really tire of talking about what they lack. And I wanted to approach the project by letting folks talk about their communities in their own words. Hi, listeners. Press Record is officially back after a short summer hiatus, and I'm really excited to share this episode with you all. You might be confused about what you just heard in the intro, or maybe you gathered from that short preview that today's episode has to do with environmental racism and oral history. And if you don't know what environmental racism is or are new to oral history, that's okay. Hopefully you'll understand better by the end of the episode. Because the big question we're going to talk about today is, what is environmental racism, and what does oral history have to do with it? A few months ago, I reached out to two local scholars and activists who are doing some really incredible research on environmental racism. Their names are Daniel Purifoy and Pavitra Vasudevan. You'll meet them in a few moments. When we sat down together, I hoped we would talk about their research in two North Carolina towns and what the practice of oral history has meant to them as researchers who study really big systemic forces. We ended up talking for two and a half hours. Pavitra and Danielle talked about systemic problems like racism and racial capitalism, gentrification, and the meaning of environmental justice. But also they talked about the power of personal narrative as both a research and organizing tool. I sat with the audio from this conversation for a while and decided that we could turn it into a summer series on environmental racism and oral history in the South. What you are about to hear is actually part one of Press Record's first mini-series, where you'll meet Pavitra and Danielle, get to know their projects, and understand why they chose to use oral history. You'll also hear some of the oral histories they collected. In the next episode, we'll dive deeper into their interviews, so stay tuned. You'll hear Pavitra and Danielle talk about specific places they spent time in for their respective projects. These places are Baden, North Carolina, Alamance County, North Carolina, specifically Mebane, and Lowndes County, Alabama. A few clarifying points for folks not from North Carolina. Baden and Mebane are about 90 miles from each other, an hour and a half car ride. Baden is not far from Charlotte and was the company town and smelting site for Alcoa, which at one point was the largest aluminum company in the world. Mebane, North Carolina is in Alamance County, under an hour from the Virginia border in the middle of the state. Lowndes County, Alabama is in the Alabama Black Belt, 
and holds historic significance as a movement space during the Black freedom struggle of the 20th century, as it's located right between Selma and Montgomery. You'll hear Danielle explain the meaning of incorporated and unincorporated Black spaces and how governance and environmental racism are interconnected. You'll hear Pavitra talk about how a powerful aluminum company dumped toxic waste on a town over the course of the 20th century. And you'll also notice that while the specific circumstances affecting each community differed, the broader historical forces shaping the lived experiences of people dealing with environmental racism are remarkably similar. Now I'm going to stop talking and turn it over to Danielle and Pavitra. I hope this episode gets you thinking and asks you as a listener to grapple with some really difficult questions. My name is Pavitra Vasudevan. I'm a PhD student at UNC Chapel Hill in geography. I'm from South India originally. I grew up in Kuwait and India, and I've been in the U.S. now for about 25 years. My name is Danielle Purifoy. I grew up in Durham, North Carolina, um, and I am currently finishing up a PhD at Duke in environmental politics and African-American studies. So what are you all working on and what drew you to your particular project? So the project that I was working on is called uh, In Conditions of Fresh Water. Um, It's a collaborative multimedia uh, oral history project um, about environmental racism in two places, um, Alamance County, North Carolina, and Lowndes County, Alabama. I should say that the project... Uh, topic came out of uh, my own research. Um, I research environmental racism in the South in particular, and I'd been really interested lately in um, how places that we call environmental justice communities or environmental injustice communities, if you will, um, how they came to be. Um, and was finding that a lot of those communities were uh, black communities in particular that dated back um, to the post-Civil War era. I started this work uh, with a master's thesis that was focused on Warren County, North Carolina, that's known now as the birthplace of environmental justice for their uh, resistance to a toxic waste landfill in the late 70s, early 80s. And I was part of this uh, community planning process for a year um, where they thought about commemorating and how they wanted to tell their story. So that's really how I came to my research um, was through this uh, collaborative process and thinking about the importance of storytelling for environmental justice and how valuable storytelling can be as a tool for communities that are trying to organize against injustices. Our community partner in Lowndes County, uh, she came to Duke and she did a talk about the um, Wastewater in wastewater sanitation infrastructure, basically lack of uh, sewer lines, um, in a lot of the communities in Lowndes County, which is in the Alabama Black Belt, and I 
immediately made a connection between what was happening in Lowndes County and what was happening in Alamance County in a community that I had known for a bit and the community members I'd known for the bit for a bit um, through my work with the North Carolina Environmental Justice Network. So the project just kind of came about as a way to connect the dots um, and to show that these are both post-Civil War era communities that are dealing with just, I mean, just as an exploration of one, right, of the environmental um, injustices that are happening in both places and how they're linked. Um, so for my dissertation research, I knew that I wanted to do work locally and I wanted to do collaborative work. So I actually approached Naima Muhammad, who's the co-director of the North Carolina Environmental Justice Network, and she believed that Baden would be a good site for this work and the idea is that Baden's really a case study of the kind of patterns that we see throughout the 20th century um, when racism and anti-black racism in particular becomes really caught up with toxic waste in one way or another, whether because communities are the site of landfills or because of hazards that people are exposed to due to um, factories or other polluting industries. Both of you use the term environmental racism how would you explain the term environmental racism, what it means to someone who has never heard that term before? Environmental racism is complicated, but um, the simplest way that I can explain it is the acts, intentional or unintentional, right, um, that result in um, disparities in where environmental benefits and environmental burdens are located. When I teach about environmental racism, I like to share a quote that um, came out of the environmental justice movement um, early on by Dana Alston. Um, The environment is where we live, where we work, where we play, and where we worship was added on later. Um, But people live in very very different environments. Um, So environmental racism, to me, is in part trying to capture that sense that the reasons that we live in different environments has everything to do about race. When we're talking about, I mean, most of the decisions, right, around where a lot of these um, environmental benefits and burdens are distributed are decided in some form by government. Um, And so it's really at base more about who has power, Race is a metaphor for power. If we accept that, right, and we know that that's true from history, um, then we know that regardless of any one person's or any one decision maker's intent, uh, black and brown places get dumped on um, and rarely get the kinds of environmental amenities that white communities get, right, Uh, where Uh, a park is going to go, where a grocery store is going to go versus where a landfill is going to go. In my research and in scholarship, uh, I use this word called racial capitalism. It comes from a black scholar, Cedric Robinson. Um, And kind of a simple way to explain it is that race is really the fundamental way that our uh, political economic system of capitalism operates. Um, So people like to think of race in terms of Uh, an identity, part of their identity, kind of something you can choose or take on or take off. But more than that, I think it is um, a kind of central principle of how our society is structured and has been um, 
since the beginning um, of the United States. And what that means is that some people get to live in places with clean water or clean air, and other pl- other people have to deal with what are the basically the burdens of our modern industrial society. So we can test these things, right? Statistically, we can, um, but then they're also reflected really importantly in these stories that people, um, people of color in particular, have been telling over and over and over again. Um, so environmental racism really is something that's come out of the environmental justice movement and for communities who, that have been fighting for, um, for their rights and for healthy lives. Um, it's not something that began with scholars doing research. It really came from people who were fighting and who recognized that their fight was shared with other communities as well. So can you both briefly explain the significance of the places where you chose to locate your projects, uh, Baden and Lowndes County in Mebane? Mebane, the city of Mebane is um, an historically white uh, town that was founded, uh, it's a post-bellum town. Um, When Mebane was originally incorporated, it did not include um, the surrounding communities of West End, Buckhorn, Perry Hill, um, and White Level. which are these historically black and indigenous communities that um, that existed when Mebane was sort of just all <laughs> one big uh, sort of uh, unincorporated space. And it's been, you know, well over 150 years at this point, and these same communities have never been in, um, what we call annexed into the city of Mebane. Uh, the city of Mebane has land use power over um, over all of these communities um, up to about three miles outside, which captures most of the communities that I'm talking about, um, But which means that they can place, say, for instance, their wastewater treatment plant, right, um, outside the city limits in West End, right? And what, what it also means is that those communities do not have voting rights um, in the local Mebin elections. So you put the wastewater treatment plant outside the city limits in West End, but you don't extend sewer lines. So they're bearing the brunt of any of the risks from the, the wastewater treatment that happens at that site, but actually are reaping none of the benefits of actually having sewer lines um, that are flowing to that treatment plant. So Baden is uh, in the Uwari Mountains in North Carolina, um, and Baden in Alcoa, Tennessee, um, its kind of sister town, were the earliest, I believe, um, aluminum smelting um, sites in the U.S. Um, Alcoa was, was at one point the largest aluminum company in the world. Um, so Baden's a pretty important site for aluminum production, and in many ways it was a test site you know, scientific and technological methods were tested. Um, and often, as we're um, finding out, without much regulation, without much oversight, um, since early in its history, Baden's been a segregated town. So there's Baden proper, or East Baden, and there's West Baden, um, which is where black workers um, originally were located and uh, continues to be um, 
predominantly, or I would say entirely black today. East and West Baden um, were integrated formally, um, and it's that came up quite a bit in the interviews, um, that one of the consequences um, for a lot of residents of West Baden has been the loss of the black community that was in West Baden. Um, so really, in a sense, uh, though formally integration happened, um, West Baden continues to be a black town without now the support and the community network that it used to have. That's part of the reason the Concerned Citizens of West Baden Community, um, this grassroots organization formed in 2013, was to address not only the environmental concerns, but the political exclusion they face. Um, Baden is a full company town, so through much of its time, the town and the surrounding areas were property of Alcoa. Um, So the town itself didn't have a town council until the 90s. And even since the 90s has been majority white town council that seems to primarily value the interests of East Baden residents. Um, A lot of the same issues we see with um, many other black uh, unincorporated and incorporated towns, as um, Danielle was talking about. Um, Also, one of the major concerns for West Baden residents is uh, the former landfill site. So Baden's... um, municipal waste, uh, household waste, as well as the industrial waste from the plant were all dumped in um, one major landfill site, which is adjacent to the town. What what was in that trash pile, though? Do you remember? What was it like? How big was it? Because everyone talks about this trash pile, but I can't imagine it. What was it? Do I remember how it looked? Yeah, like what was in there? Was it closed off at all? No, because the kids used to go... Again... Most of my children went down there for me. I had to work. I ain't had time to run the trash pile. So my the children played on it. Mm-hmm. And if they bought something home that they wanted, we we mess with it. The trash pile is just a dump, a dump somewhere. Everybody just go to drive them trucks, come back them back, and empty that trash out. And when yeah, that trash yeah. out there, it's just out there. Whether it's groceries, whether mm. it's filth or whatever the stuff is, it's thrown out there. So it, everyone everything. who lived there threw their trash there. Mm-hmm. But Alcoa also threw trash there from the Yeah, plant? Alcoa just took the, their trucks down where they gathered their trash. Mm. They throwed it out there. Mm. They went around through the community and picked up trash and throwed it out there. The trash from the plant, they throwed it out mm. there. Mm. So it was both. It was waste yeah. from the household and from the plant. Yeah, you anything went out there. Mm. Mm. When do you know when that fire happened? Do you remember how old were your kids when the fire, when the trash pile started burning? I just know that it, when we saw fire down there and it was, they were it kept burning and that's what they said it was. It was that stuff that had been covered. For years and stuff, with caught a fire, and that's all you said. And that's what you thought. You never thought about it was hazardous. You still was looking at it as, as you pass by at night and look and see, is it still burning? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you smelling the smoke and going on. And ain't nobody told you to move. Nobody didn't yeah. say nothing. They didn't say they were informed. They knew what was going on. But you think that the community didn't. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the major concerns is this landfill site. Um, so it's just a toxic waste dump that um, hasn't, and it's shocking that it still hasn't been remediated and nothing has been done 
to it um, since, you know, pretty much since the 70s. Um, so even though there's been waste sites identified with the State Department of Environmental Quality, um, West Baden residents were not involved in those uh, surveys and those negotiation processes with the town, with the state agencies, or with the company. There's also an old uh, dumping ground that's basically an unlined landfill in West End. Um, and one of our um, interviewees, Omari Wilson, talks about this. The landfill uh, uh, runs along uh, Holt Street, and there's a there's an old service station um, near that, that property. And when I was a kid, I just thought it was just some vacant land with trees and stuff. And, you know, I just thought it was a vacant area um, before I knew what was really going on there. But uh, from, from what, uh, from talking to my parents and the, and the research that had been done into that, that landfill, there's old uh, scrap wood and toxic materials uh, that were buried in the ground there and covered up. Uh, the landfill wasn't wasn't permitted or anything. So there's no, you know, I doubt it. I very seriously doubt it has any liners or you know, anything like that. It's a, existed for years, for many years, probably before my my grandparents were kids, or maybe even before that. It may predate that. I mean, it's probably, it could be probably pretty old. I know it's it's probably as old as as West End because the streets don't go through. So the landfill, the wastewater treatment plant, and then combined with the lack of basic amenities, um, the lack of paved streets, uh, the lack of proper drainage and guttering so you know the streets would flood when it rained heavily um and sometimes would make it difficult to drive on or difficult for children to get out to the bus stops those sorts of things um and there's really not much you can do about it if you don't have any political power in that space because the county which is they're technically those communities uh local government um those communities end up bouncing back and forth, right? <laughs> and complaining to the city, to the county, to the city, to the county, and never really getting anywhere. Um, the case in Lowndes County is really interesting because um, Whitehall, which is the town in, um, in Lowndes County that where we were, um, is actually an incorporated black town, and it incorporated in 1979, despite, right, having fought to incorporate, because there were very few towns after Whitehall incorporated, black towns that were able to incorporate because they changed the laws of incorporation. The um, town of Whitehall still does not have um, sewer lines. Uh, They're still operating on sewer lagoon systems, which is um, one of the earliest sort of like um, forms of wastewater treatment um, and has a bears a whole lot of risks, especially when it's not done well. Um, and oftentimes with these sorts of projects um, in black communities, they aren't done well by the engineers. All sorts of documented um, cases of communities um, in the Alabama Black Belt, um, other communities in the Black Belt that have this issue of sewage from these lagoons backing into their homes, right? But as far as the water and stuff, I I think in other areas, not just in Whitehall, our surrounding areas, a lot of time people don't even have running water. We got people in mobile homes and in houses too, running their water or their waste in the river. So that's water coming back 
for us to drink. It was one area that I worked in, all white area, but the people was willing to talk about it. He said, the man here, he's renting all our, these trailers to us, and um, we know all the waste is going in that water, and we just, yeah, you're going to get sick. Sure, you, you're drinking this water. If it's coming back in your house, it ain't being cleaned enough. Yeah, so this is um, kind of a, a, a cool kind of match, right, of looking at the consequences of being unincorporated, right, versus the consequences of being incorporated and seeing that in a lot of cases, um, though certainly Whitehall has some infrastructure, right, um, the, a lot of it looks very much the same. Both of y'all are talking about big systems, capitalism, environmental racism, and in both of your projects, you use individual narrative and stories to get at these big systems. I want to know what makes oral history so central to your projects. You know, Baden is a small town, um, and one of the challenges with working in small towns is how you actually learn about the history of that place. Um, and I'm often surprised, even though this is what I study, and I shouldn't be surprised at how white that history often is. Um, and by that, I mean the history that is recorded and written and commemorated. In a town like Baden, that history has been written in part by Alcoa, of course, as uh, this is their company town. And so in 2015, they had a 100-year, a centennial celebration. And it was really interesting to see the ways that they document the history, um, almost as a sort of quaint little town where both black and white people were able to have a good life. Um, so that's been a driving part of my research, is asking if that's how people who live in West Baden, whether that's how they would tell their history. And it's been interesting in part because it's not a simple yes or no kind of answer. Um, I think what I've learned from doing oral history is people actually have a very complicated relationship with their own history. I'll say, so when we started the project, one of the things that I knew, because I have been for about the last nine years, um, you know, since I got sort of my start um, thinking about environmental justice and sort of working in this realm after Katrina in, in New Orleans, had been to enough communities and had enough conversations to know that people really tire of talking about what's wrong with their communities. They really tire of talking about what they lack. And I wanted to approach the project by letting folks talk about their communities in their own words. Um, I wanted to clearly, right, get at, right, the, um, the questions around the infrastructure and the exclusion because there had already been things written about those things in both places. But I did want to affirmatively, right, have folks um, be able to understand these large abstract things I was talking about through the how 
how they impact the lived experiences of the folks who are impacted by them. Um, a lot of people in Baden have generationally been dependent on this company for their livelihoods um, and for their lives as they know it. And so there is a sense of strong loyalty to the company. But it's not only that. They, in addition to that, there's a sense of betrayal by the company. I could have learned some of these things from existing archives, um, by, but I would have had to read between the lines quite a bit. Um, and so some of these pieces of that story aren't things that you can pick up from written history. Um, and I'm thinking now about a, one of my uh, favorite interviews was with um, Willie Mae Harris. Uh, she's a 90-year-old, very youthful elder who has been documenting Baden's history for quite some time. Um, and so she really embodies, but also I think has knows very well this kind of long-term history of the black community in Baden over time. Um, and drew my attention to many of these processes and of the ways that people didn't know early on necessarily what they were signing up for. People found out that they were working among the investors and all this mm. kind of stuff. And all this stuff was, like you say, went to the trash pile. And they was not caring whether they did it or not. Because the blacks were so glad to have jobs. They had come off of slavery. They had come off of share cropping. They were not educated. And whatever happened, at least they thought it was a better way of life. And it was, in a way a better way of life, but it was dangerous. Um, unfortunately, uh, it's in some ways debatable how much better it was. I mean, the working conditions were brutal. Um, people were exposed uh, over generations now, have been exposed to lethal wastes, um, not only the workers, but people living around the plant. Um, but it's difficult to say, you know, in retrospect, it seems we, we might wonder, like, what would make people take on a job like that? Um, but from Miss Harris's perspective, you know, the trade-off at the time, people did not know what they were exposing their children to, for example. Um, they didn't know how some of these toxins worked. Um, you know, if you don't know, it would seem that, you know, you wash the clothes and the toxins probably wash off. From the time I was about 14 or 15, like my father would bring other men clothes with all this ore and stuff on it. And my grandmother would wash it and I helped wash it because they would give her 50 cent or a quarter or something. And so we would wash them. So when my husband bring his clothes home, I had to wash them so that he could have them to be back. They would work in them from three to a week, three days to a week, and they would be full of oil. And so the, the company knew that this stuff was thing, but they didn't tell the workers. Yeah, I have washed a much, many a clothes full of oil and asbestos. They didn't get protective uniforms. Um, they think until the 1990s is what, um, one couple recalled in the interview. And I was shocked because we know about the nature of 
the toxins that result from aluminum production, we've known about them for most of the 100 years that Baden's been in existence. So none of this is new information, and yet it didn't translate into any protective measures in this town, in this company. So there's something important about that that you can't get from official archives. Um, One of those lessons for me has been the intimate nature of these large structures that, you know, we can talk about capitalism or racism in some abstract sense, but the ways that it plays out in our lives is actually very complicated, including the ways, the deals that we make. Um, And I'm saying we in general, but these are, of course, uh, the choices people are given are very different. I wanted to leave a whole lot of space for people to just kind of go off and talk about what they wanted. And that was... Yeah, I was I was really floored by that. I was like, my goodness, right? Like, you know, people who are living, right, who are living um, in these spaces and encountering um, these systems never enc- uh, encounter them separate from each other. But so when I went back home in 2000 and I saw that things hadn't changed that much, I mean, there were Black elected officials, but in terms of infrastructure... You know, there weren't pumps like Miss Nell had where people go and pump water and carry it in buckets like they used to. But in terms of um, having access to wastewater infrastructure, I saw that that was not not there. And I also saw um, there wasn't an investment in making sure that people had some of the other kinds of amenities and people still had to drive long distances to maybe get to a pharmacist or get to a well-stocked grocery store because a lot of places are not going anywhere. You don't have certain types of infrastructure, be it natural gas, uh, electricity, water, and wastewater treatment. <laughs> and there was no wastewater treatment. And even later, I found out that it's not. it wasn't just that simple, um, that the wastewater issues were compounded by the fact that the soil doesn't perk and some of the what and the cost of the technology that was recommended and the fact that even those that could afford the technology it was flawed and failing so those are the things that I discovered so a lot of my work and focus um, since 2005-2006 has been on the wastewater issue specifically and trying to get that resolved. And that's been one of the hardest things in the world, but it's been in education as well, because I've learned things that I didn't know about this. And I've learned a lot about how it contributes to rural poverty, uh, lack of productivity because of, um, because of being exposed possibly to illnesses that they wouldn't have otherwise, um, could have something to do with the reason why children aren't doing as well in some of these schools because they could very well have hookworm infections. So those are the kinds of things that I've discovered, and that's the work that I do. And my work is around trying to find solutions to this problem. Having them just talk about it, you can kind of tease it out and be like, oh, right, like this is the impact of being on the outskirts of the city of Mebane, say, for instance, right? You're not incorporated into the city of Mebane, but you're impacted by the city of Mebane's uh, land use policies, right? But then you can't vote, right, in the local elections. Um, and, and, right, 
even if you could, right, be annexed or in- incorporated into the city of Mebin, you wouldn't do it because of the kind of history, right, with and history of and legacy of um, the relationship between your community and the city of Mebin, right? So the thing that you might think would be the fix, this thing that people might have approached me about as a fix, I don't want it, right, because of this other history and because I think um, the institutions that we've built here, we want to maintain them or we don't want them to be erased. It was Whitehall. It was Calhoun. Uh, it was Gordonville. There were places throughout where people, they apparently a number of plantations were purchased. And those plantations were divided up. And black families were allowed to purchase the land. And um, that's how a lot of them became landowners. Um, and that, that is, uh, that's why place is so important because part of our legacy and family history is that our families taught us to purchase land or to keep land or to always keep the family property because that's the place where the family can always go. So no matter how much is, you always make sure you keep some land that holds the family together. And... A lot of families believe that. And I think that, I believe that it came because after slavery, so many of us were dispersed all over the place and we lost contact. And that was a way, that was that one place that kept us centered and together. And um, and, and those places, too, were where the seeds of resistance were planted. And so that um, was just really powerful. And I, yeah, I was really... Um, really taken by how how robust, right, like that the use of oral history is to really help us understand um, how all of these sorts of systems work. Memory practices, memory work is important in two ways. Um, one, because toxins are often invisible um, until there's some uh, process of... Um, bringing them to light. Uh, and the other reasons because racism is also often um, invisible in a certain way. Um, of course, people experiencing racism know what's happening, um, but it becomes very difficult over time to trace the kind of histories that Danielle was talking about. Um, so memory work, memory practices, and commemoration can become really important ways, I think, of drawing attention to both waste and to race. Thanks for listening to Press Record. That is the end of part one of our three-part mini-series on environmental racism and oral history. Stay tuned for part two, coming out in a few weeks, when you'll hear more about the specific oral histories Danielle and Pavitra collected. Special thanks to Danielle Purifoy, Pavitra Vasudevan, Rachel Seidman, and the North Carolina Environmental Justice Network. Press Record is the official podcast of the Southern Oral History Program at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. This episode was edited and produced by me, Carol Prince. 
be sure to check out our website at www.sohp.org backslash podcast to find more information about Danielle and Pavitra's projects and the North Carolina Environmental Justice Network. As always, we want to hear from you. Email us with your thoughts at pressrecordsohp at gmail.com. Tweet us at SOHP Oral History. Like and comment on our Facebook page, searchable as Press Record Podcast. Also, make sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes and SoundCloud. Until next time, thanks for tuning in. This has been Press Record.